time for me to do my part. Everyone should have a part in the ministry of the gospel, right? Some preach, some put out goodies, some vacuum the floor, some read the scripture, some greet people at the door. Everyone should be included in the ministry of the gospel, especially here. And that's why we encourage you guys each week to, to get signed up on that back table in some area of ministry. Um, and if you're not sure what area of ministry to sign up, and man, I'd love to talk to you about that. I'm, I'm sure I can find a place for you. Uh, good morning. I want to start with prayer, and uh, then we'll get to work. And I don't think you can pray enough during a church service. <clears throat> Father, this will probably be about our fifth time of praying today, Lord. And... Uh, we're supposed to pray without ceasing. Somehow we just continue to be in prayerful fellowship with you, God. This is one of those times where we just need to lift up this entire moment to you, Lord. Um, I and the elders and others feel like this is probably one of the most critical moments during a worship service where your word is proclaimed. Um, word is the power unto eternal life. It's a reverent thing and it's an important thing, and I uh, always seem to assume this pulpit with a little trepidation and fear because of, I know who I am, I know who you are, <laughs> and I am so prone to error, and uh, Holy Spirit, I need you. These people need you. They're dull of hearing as I am dull of speech. Unless, Holy Spirit, you attend the word, there is... Nothing more than a social club happening here. We need you, Holy Spirit. Come into our presence. Come into our very hearts. Open our minds, our hearts, to the truth of your word, Jesus. And fill me with the Holy Spirit so that I may proclaim it accurately, boldly, in a way that glorifies you. Teach us truths today from your word, Lord, as we take another look at Paul's missions journey. Basically what's happening in the scriptures, we are seeing the word of Christ, the gospel, go forth and have an incredible impact on the areas where it goes forth. One of those areas that we need to see your power released and the word powerfully shown and transforming us is here today. I love what Spurgeon said. He said, the preaching of Christ is the whip that flogs the devil. There's a lot of wisdom in that saying. I pray that the devil would be severely flogged today. And I pray that my flesh would be flogged severely. That you would change me, change these folks. And so have your way here, Lord Jesus. May you be exalted and glorified and worshipped. We're trusting you during this time. May we be attentive and alert and awake to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are currently studying the book of Acts. And last week we began to focus on chapter 13. We camped out on verses 1 to 3 and discovered how the church at Antioch, this Gentile church up in the northern region uh, of that area of the Middle East, we discovered how that 
church at Antioch was led by the Holy Spirit to reach beyond their city for the sake of Jesus Christ and lost sinners. The Holy Spirit gave them instructions, gave the leadership instructions to send out Saul, Paul, and Barnabas, which these two were their best preacher teachers and sent out by the Holy Spirit as the missionaries and church planters. That's one thing that we need to be cognitive of is that these men didn't just simply go out as missionaries preaching the gospel. They also planted churches and they supported whatever churches they came across. Um, so they weren't just missionaries, they were church planters. But the church at Antioch sent them out because the Holy Spirit said, send them out. I've equipped them for a particular mission and send them out. And so they were sent out. And the leaders of the church at Antioch did spend quite a bit of time praying and fasting uh, prior to sending them out, making sure that they had covered just about everything that they could think of in prayer and then intense prayer through fasting. And then they went ahead and sent them out. It was really neat to study that passage. Uh, and it's remarkable when you consider that the church at Antioch was a brand new church at a little over a year old. Fact of the matter is, is that most churches do not plant churches. It's a simple reality. Most churches invest inwardly rather than outwardly. And I have a saying for this. I call it empire syndrome. Empire syndrome happens when church leaders develop a form of tunnel vision that keeps their eyes and attention fixed on one location and one group of people. They begin to invest all of the money, resources, time, and talent into one location. They essentially forget about the second part of the Great Commission, which we just heard read, which says, go out from your one location, from Jerusalem, and plant churches. Make disciples in all nations, teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What do these leaders do? They just keep building, they keep broadening, and they keep beautifying one place. And that place eventually becomes their empire. It happens all the time. All the time. In this community, beyond this community, throughout the world. And if we are not careful and prayerful, it can happen to us. It can absolutely happen to us. It's pretty easy to get into a routine of ministry into a routine of investing inwardly, into a routine of focusing only inwardly. In fact, I think it's a lot easier to obey the first part of the Great Commission, which is to minister right where you're at. It's easier to do that than it is to go beyond that. It's kind of our default. If we're saved, we tend to just focus on the here and now and on these folks and on this place. Therefore, we take all that we have and we put it into that place. The signs of this are really obvious. There's not much happening in the community. The church just basically keeps building and remodeling and decorating and redecorating and pouring into and developing and buying more land surrounding it so they can expand. And they just take this thing and it starts like this and it just continues to multiply and multiply. And then when there's no land left in the area to consume, it's just completely keep redoing this thing technological upgrades all the time and 
hundreds of thousands of dollars being spent on sound and lighting and all of these things. It's just this, it's like this place is the bank account and we just pour everything we have into it. Meanwhile, there's just thousands, if not in this particular area, hundreds of thousands of people who do not know Jesus. And I think the basic thinking is that, man, if we could just get them to this campus, it's okay to invest here and keep it here. We're trying to make a place that people will come to. Well, I don't see anything in the Great Commission that says to build and rebuild and remodel and decorate and make pretty a place that will draw the masses. It just says, start here and move out from here. So this happens all the time. And we need to be very, very cautious. I marvel at the fact that this church at Antioch was only a year and a half old, and here they are sending men out to plant churches. Now, the church at Antioch has set for us an example of what a church should be like. There are some additional truths that spring forth from verses 1 to 3. One of the things that I noticed last week and again this week was that this church, these leaders were guided by the Holy Spirit. Through worship and fasting, the Holy Spirit gave them a missions and church planting plan, or at least the people to go out and carry it out. He told them who to send, which immediately causes me to think that they were already thinking of ways to be missional and to go out. They were seeking the Lord. How do we do this? How do we get? We've been here for a year, year and a half. How do we get out of here? Let's keep training people here, but how do we send them out? Who do we send? See, that's what they were praying for. They were led by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit said, these two guys, send them. Another thing we notice is that they were obedient to the Holy Spirit. They recognized, affirmed, prayed for, and then sent out the Holy Spirit's appointed workers, Saul and Barnabas. They didn't just get the directive or the directions from the Holy Spirit on who to send out. They actually obeyed. We watched last week as we were studying that they sent them out. They even went through a little bit of a cool ritual of kind of praying over them and then laying hands on them, identifying them before the church and then sending them out. They were obedient to the Holy Spirit. Another thing is that they were kingdom-minded rather than empire-minded. Seeking the Lord for wisdom and then sending out their best preachers, teachers as missionary slash church planters proves this. It proves that they had kingdom mindsets, a kingdom mentality as opposed to an empire mentality. If they had an empire mentality, they would have done everything they could to keep those leaders there in that church, investing there in those people. Think about this for a moment. Who actually sends out, which church sends out their best preachers and teachers? What church does that? Most churches in the U.S. would never even consider doing that. They are either too selfish because they don't want to share the men that God has raised up in their church, or they're afraid that if those men step out for a while or never come back, we won't make it. We can't lose our best. We cannot send them out. They need to be here. But not the church at Antioch. They had Barnabas and Saul preaching in their church for one year. We talked about this weeks ago. Can you imagine sitting under the Apostle Paul's preaching? After a year of his preaching, you'd, you'd do everything you could to keep him in your church. And yet here we see the church at Antioch 
they were not only willing, but they sent them out. Why? Because they were kingdom-minded rather than empire-minded. Why? Most importantly, because they were what? Led by the Holy Spirit. A church that is led by the Holy Spirit will be kingdom-minded. That's not to say that the Holy Spirit isn't present and active in churches that only look inwardly. But a church that is led by the Holy Spirit will be kingdom-minded, not empire-minded. They will be thinking of how to get the people trained and sent out, not only thinking about it and dreaming about it for years and years and years, but actually doing it. They will send them. They will plant churches. They will make disciples. A church that is led by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, will be kingdom-minded. Now, there is something else that helped to keep the outward focus of this church, you know, to keep them focused on going out and, and thinking about other communities, and that's its leadership. Each of the leaders had come from other countries and cities to plant and or support the church at Antioch. Think about these facts from 1 and 3. Saul was from Tarsus. He wasn't from Antioch. Barnabas was from Cyprus. Lucius was from Cyrene. Simeon was from North Africa. Menaean, the lifelong friend of Herod Antipas, was probably from Jerusalem and had left Jerusalem at the hands of Saul when he was a persecutor before he was saved. Each of these guys came from somewhere else to plant this church in Antioch, to support this church in Antioch. Well, it certainly helps when you have a pastoral staff or an elder staff that is thinking beyond this one location, that maybe even has some missional experience, maybe that's come from somewhere else. I don't think that that has to be the entire answer to it, but it helps to have guys that did come from somewhere else or at the very minimum have a kingdom mindset. These men all had a kingdom mindset. The fact that they were in Antioch proves it. If they had been empire-minded, they would have remained in their churches, in their cities, kind of like the church at Jerusalem did prior to the great persecution. You think about the Jerusalem church with me for a moment. We have studied it in massive detail and marveled at these Christians, at this community of faith, rightfully so. Think about it with me. The church at Jerusalem exploded into existence on the day of Pentecost. Every time the Apostle Peter preached the gospel, the church seemed to grow by thousands. <laughs> All the believers met at Solomon's portico for worship. They also met in their homes and broke bread, and they sold their belongings to provide for each other. They continued to grow and even gain the favor of the neighbors who marveled at their hospitality and devotion. The church at Jerusalem began to settle into a nice little routine that actually lasted for several years. But something very important was missing, friends. Nowhere in the early chapters of Acts do we see any effort or energy put towards planting churches outside of Jerusalem, despite the fact that Jesus explicitly commanded the apostles to begin in Jerusalem and move out from there. The church in Jerusalem had, in many ways, developed, unintentionally developed, an empire mindset. They could not see beyond Jerusalem. Were they active in Jerusalem? Yes. Were they going house to house? 
Yes, but in the early chapters, chapters of Acts, we see nothing outside of Jerusalem. And then God intervened, didn't he? He sent Saul the persecutor, and the church scattered and began to obey the second half of the Great Commission, which is to go, therefore, and make disciples in other parts of the world. Lesson learned. We've studied it together. These are facts. As much as we don't like them, now, in sharp contrast to that, we have the church at Antioch, which was barely over a year old and already sending out missionary church planters. And man, is that ever the prayer of mine for this church? It's easier to be like those in Jerusalem, to develop an empire and invest into it. Man, my prayer for our church is that we would not settle into that that we would not develop that empire mindset, that we would be like the church at Antioch, missional, thinking of ways, praying for ways, obeying the Holy Spirit. And that is essentially where we pick up in the narrative. Let's look at verse 4, chapter 13, verse 4, Acts chapter 13, verse 4. Acts chapter 13, verse 4, it says, So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Well, who was Luke speaking of? Saul and Barnabas. They left Antioch, and they were sent out by the Holy Spirit and went down to this particular place, and then they sailed on to Cyprus. Now, why did Luke write, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit? Why did he say that? If you notice in verses 1 to 3, he, keeps, he kind of keeps coming back to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit selected these guys. The Holy Spirit did this. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's his whole point in mentioning the Holy Spirit again. He is again reminding us that it is the Holy Spirit who appoints, prepares, and sends missionary church planners. It's not churches, friends. Churches just, if they're in tune with the Holy Spirit, will recognize the Holy Spirit's movement and obey. But it's the Holy Spirit that, that literally appoints, prepares, and sends. And that's why he says it again, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. He wants everyone that reads this to know that that is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that sends people out to do missions work. So they went down to Seleucia from Antioch. And Seleucia is located some 16 miles away near the mouth of the Orontes River. Seleucia served as a port city to Antioch. Saul and Barnabas may have traveled from Seleucia by boat. They could have taken one of the roads down to it, but I think they probably traveled by boat. It would have been faster and safer. Once they reached Seleucia, they sailed for Cyprus. Cyprus is the third largest island in the Mediterranean after uh, Sicily and Sardinia. It's about 60 miles off the Syrian coast and would have been visible from Seleucia on a clear day. The main part of the island of Cyprus is about 100 miles long, and it runs about at the main part, the widest section, about 60 miles wide. Did a little research on this, and I think Cyprus would have been approximately twice the size of Stanislaus County. So it's not an extremely large island. It's fair size, but it's not a really, really big island. But if you've ever looked on a little map or whatever, and you've looked at Stanislaus County, it's kind of shaped weird, but it'd be about twice the size of our county. 
In the New Testament times, its two major cities were Salamis. I keep calling it Salami. It's not pronounced that way. Salamis, I guess, which was the chief port city and commercial center. And then it had another city back in these days that was a main one called Paphos, which was its capital. Now, why did Saul and Barnabas choose Cyprus? Luke didn't record how these men came to the conclusion to go to Cyprus. And if you look at verses 1 to 3, the Holy Spirit doesn't say, I picked these guys out, send them to Cyprus. The Holy Spirit doesn't give them those instructions. The Holy Spirit, it would appear, wasn't concerned about exactly where for them to go, or maybe he was, but there's no communication of it in our text. So how did they come to the conclusion to go to Cyprus? The Holy Spirit said, these guys are the ones... And then the Holy Spirit sent them out. How did they know where to go? Well, I suspect it's because that was where Barnabas was from. It made sense. Well, that's my old stomping grounds. That community needs the gospel. That island needs the gospel like you can't imagine. It makes sense that they would have probably picked it based on that fact. There's nothing wrong with that. Cyprus needs the gospel. And so I believe that Barnabas, being from that particular place, had weighed in and suggested to the other leaders or to Paul and said, let's go there. Let's begin there. Pretty interesting. MacArthur wrote, Saul and Barnabas no doubt chose to begin their missionary outreach on Cyprus for several reasons. According to Acts 4.36, it was Barnabas' home and thus familiar territory. Also, it was close to Antioch, probably two days' journey at most. Makes sense for them to be close to their home-based church. Further, Cyprus had a large Jewish population. Um, all those reasons made it an ideal starting point for outreach to the Gentile world. Those are some pretty good insights. Look at five with me. When they arrived at Salamis... They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. They had John there to assist them. Now, the first thing they did when they arrived at Salamis or Salamis was they located the Jewish synagogues. Then they entered them, and then they began to preach the word there. And this was Paul's custom. If you examine his missionary journeys, he would first find synagogues and cities and go into them. To the Jew first, the gospel must be proclaimed. Even after being rejected time and time again from his own people, he still had a heart of love for them and believed in the commandment of Jesus to preach the gospel to the Jew first. So it was customary for him to do that. The word of God here means the gospel. When we see it there that it says they began to proclaim the word of God, they are proclaiming the excellencies of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, since these were Jews that they were presenting to in these synagogues, they probably presented Jesus as Israel's long-awaited Messiah. That's something the Jews would relate to. They were waiting for a Messiah to come. Many had recognized Jesus and believed on him and in him, but for the most part, the majority of Jews, even today, are waiting for their Messiah to come. There's no doubt they would have also referenced how Jesus was rejected and then killed by the Jewish nation. That's how Peter presented the gospel to Jews. He said, he came, you missed him, and guess what? Not only did you miss him, but you killed him. Now repent and believe, be baptized. I'm sure they preached something similar. 
There's no doubt they presented the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And apostolic preaching, the center of all apostolic preaching, was essentially the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's kind of a cornerstone truth of Christianity. Without it, we're fools. We're idiots. We're religious. We've got nothing without the resurrection. And so there's no doubt they preached the resurrection of Jesus. And there's no reason to doubt that they called those Jewish listeners, audience, to repent, believe, and be baptized. The text also says that they had John with them. John who? John the Apostle? No. John Mark. A couple of weeks ago we read that John Mark left Jerusalem to go with Saul and Barnabas back to Antioch. They had come down to bring supplies. John Mark left Jerusalem and went with them. Here we see that he also, he went with them back from Jerusalem to Antioch. But here we see in our text that he actually accompanied Saul and Barnabas on their trip to Cyprus. What was he doing there? with them. The text says he was basically there to assist them. John Mark wasn't a preacher teacher like them, but actually he was an assistant to them. It's a great truth here. The ministry of the church, the ministry of the gospel requires preachers and teachers, but it also requires all kinds and sorts of assistance. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul referred to the church as a body with Many members with Christ as the head, each member serves a function to the body. Each member is highly important. Each member is highly significant and valued. Now, John Mark played a critical role in the ministry of the church here. He assisted and supported Saul and Barnabas. Without him, Saul and Barnabas would have had to have been, they would have basically essentially been forced to set aside the preaching and teaching to some degree of the gospel to answer every question, to pray for every need, to visit every sickbed. They would have been toast without this other servant with them, without this assistant. So many great parallels here, man. Literally, if you serve in our children's ministry here at RHC, not only are you teaching our children the gospel, which is massive, which is huge. I could stop there, but that's not all you're doing. You are also assisting me with my preaching of the gospel. You are assisting the parents of this church. Because of you, they can sit, listen, and enjoy a message from God to hear the gospel in peace. And not all children act like maniacs. Some do, and they need to be down there. You provide time and space for me to proclaim the gospel, to fulfill my ministry duty, and an opportunity for parents to hear the gospel in peace. You are assisting not just these children in knowing the gospel, but in the pastor of this church in proclaiming the gospel. What do you think John Mark was doing? If you serve on the elder board or in gospel care, not only are you ministering to our beloved church family and people outside of our church family whom we love, but you are assisting me with my gospel work, with my studies and sermon prep. Without you, I would have to visit every sickbed. I would have to pray for every prayer request. I would have to answer every theological question, which means I would never have time to study and come here and preach the word to you. I can't even imagine trying to pull that off. Not that I don't enjoy that kind of ministry. The gospel is not just about proclaiming the word. It's about ministering the word to people. And using your hands and feet. But I can't handle all of it. 
you serve in our music ministry, not only are you leading our people to the very throne of God in worship, but you are also assisting me by helping to prepare and focus my heart to preach the gospel. That's huge. The ministry of music is a handmaiden to the ministry of the word. You help to get our people, if you serve in music ministry, to a place of being able to receive, hear and receive the word of God. You are assisting me, Aaron, and everyone else that serves in that ministry. You are assisting me in what I do. If you take care of this building or serve in hospitality or anywhere else, you are not only blessing our church body, but you are also assisting me in the ministry of God's word. Every ounce of time and effort for everyone that you put forth here is a blessing to our church community, our church family, and to me. Guess what? You're being like John Mark. Why else do you think Paul got so upset when he abandoned ship? Think about that for a moment, how critical your ministry is here at this church. Oh, I just cleaned the bathroom. Don't ever think of what you do that way. The fact that you're serving shows that you have a kingdom mindset to some degree. This is why we pound this every week. Everyone, we want 100% inclusion. Not only do we need that here, and do I need more of your support and the elders and everyone else and you putting forth your time, talent, and treasure to serve the body here. We need that so much from you, but there's such tremendous joy that comes to you for being obedient. And I want you to be like John Mark. Some of you are. Without your sacrifice and effort and work, this stuff just doesn't happen. We just don't keep moving forward. We need everyone. John Mark played a critical role. Now let's look at 6 and 7. It says, when they had gone through the whole island, I love that, the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, or proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. After Salamis, they went throughout the rest of the island of Cyprus preaching the gospel. They didn't just stay in Salamis. They moved on. They went to other towns and provinces and areas. They eventually preached their way all the way up into the capital city of Paphos, which was situated on the southwest coast. Paphos was the seat of the Roman government and a great center for the worship of Aphrodite. Some of us know her better as Venus. The greatest festival on Cyprus in honor of Aphrodite was the Aphrodisia. It was held for three days each spring. It was attended by great crowds, not only from all parts of Cyprus, but also from the surrounding countries. I mean, people would literally take boats to go to this thing. Paphos was a city rife with immorality, extensive 
religious prostitution accompanied the aphrodisia celebration. Now, while in Paphos, Saul and Barnabas came across a person named Bar-Jesus. Luke lists four important details about Bar-Jesus. Right there in the text, number one, he was a magician. Magician here comes from magos in Greek. Magos does not necessarily have a negative connotation. It is used, for example, in Matthew 2, 1 to describe the Medo-Persian magi. Remember the magi or wise men who visited the infant Jesus and his family? The Medo-Persians were well-versed in astronomy, astrology, agriculture, mathematics, and history. They were also famous for their ability to interpret dreams. We see that in Daniel 2.1. But throughout the centuries, magic became more of a trade or a profession rather than a form of just a, kind of like a, a pure, as if there were such a thing as a pure form of the occult. But that's kind of what it was back in the Medo-Persian era. And throughout the centuries, it kind of morphed and became, became more of a kind of a circus act, became more of a, a routine where these guys would travel around and perform these magical displays in these things, meanwhile siphoning people's money and possessions out of them. It really kind of became a traveling circus in a way. Kind of morphed into this, into this dazzling of the people with these displays of power and draining them of their money. Magicians during this particular moment were literally nothing more than swindlers and snake oil salesmen. One of my commentaries describes magicians as persons skilled in the use of incantations with the goal of influencing or controlling transcendent powers to overcome public or private problems. Many magicians sought to do those things, claiming to seek the divine for answers to critical issues and things. Some of them weren't just circus performers, but they were actually respected as these guys that were in tune with the divine that could find answers by, you know, summoning the spiritual realm. Interestingly, this is the second time in the book of Acts that, that church leadership crossed paths with a magician. Back in Acts 8, Peter dealt with Simon the magician who wanted to purchase apostolic power so he could what? Wow and woo his fan base. He wanted these powers so that he could grow his fan base. And what happened? Peter rebuked him, and he packed up and moved on. So this is the second time we see an apostle or a leader cross paths with a magician. So he was a magician. Number two, he was Jewish. The name Bar-Jesus is Aramaic, and it means son of Jesus or son of Yeshua, son of Joshua. Bar-Jesus' parents were probably devout and that is why they named their son after Joshua, who led Israel after Moses. Joshua was a highly respected and loved leader. It is highly doubtful that Bar-Jesus, even though he was Jewish, was, it's highly doubtful that he was received by the Jewish community in Paphos because of his profession. He was probably a disinherited outcast, more than likely. Number three, he was a false prophet. False prophet can be described as one who appealed to divine authority for his pronouncements, 
but whose claims are rejected as false. False prophets claim that their prophetic utterances were from God, uh, but their messages always contradicted the scripture. The Israelites were instructed to put to death all false prophets. This is probably why Bar-Jesus resided. He was Jewish, remember. This is probably why he resided in Paphos rather than in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, he probably would have been nabbed and put to death for doing what he did. Now, men like Muhammad, the founder of Islam, Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, and Charles Taze Russell, the founder of Jehovah's Witnesses, were all false prophets. Together, they have led over a billion people into false religion. Bar-Jesus may have been promoting a hybrid form of Judaism, which consisted of magic, superstition, and law. Number four, he was an assistant to the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Bar-Jesus was no dummy. He was a master at his craft. His abilities had impressed the highest-ranking official in Cyprus. Proconsul means the head of the government in a senatorial province. Sergius Paulus was the head senator over Cyprus. He was a man of immense power and influence. He oversaw the other senators, the governor, and all the other leaders and supervisors. Sergius Paulus was the highest ranking government official on the island of Cyprus. And Bar-Jesus had impressed and dazzled him so much that Sergius Paulus made him the court or his court astrologer. As court astrologer, he would have been the head, he would have um, basically had the head senators, Sergius Paulus's, he would have been his right-hand man and had his ear and attention at all times. He was his spiritual counselor. In many ways, Bar-Jesus held the second highest position in Cyprus. He literally had the proconsul's attention and ear 24-7. If Sergius needed spiritual counsel, he summoned Bar-Jesus. If there was a problem that the Senate could not find a solution for, they would summon Bar-Jesus to work his craft and connect with the divine powers for answers. Bar-Jesus was to Sergius Paulos as Jesse Jackson was to Bill Clinton. He was the head senator's leading spiritual divine and spiritual counselor. In some ways, he would have been the equivalent to, oh, Billy Graham, who was a spiritual advisor to other leaders, presidents. But he was a very, very powerful man who had massive influence on the number one political official there. It starts to all come into picture here. Luke also added a nice little little nugget of truth. My wife always hates it when I use that. Kids always think of a happy meal. Chicken nugget of truth here. Dip that in the sweet and sour. That's good stuff. Stop your heart, but it tastes good. Luke also includes a nice little nugget here about Sergius Paulos. What did he write there? Look in your text. He wrote, he was what? An intelligent man. Sergius Paulos was no dummy. He was smart. He had to be. In his office, he had to be an intelligent man, unlike most senators today, where you have to have 
zero intelligence, godliness, or sense <laughs> whatsoever. This man, on the other hand, had a mind, a brilliant mind. He was intelligent. Another thing to note is that he was interested in Judaism. His involvement with Bar-Jesus shows us that. Bar-Jesus, no doubt, I mean, I, I don't believe at all that he completely jettisoned the Judaism, he, that faith. He did not abandon that. He just had a hybrid form of it. And so Sergius's involvement with Bar-Jesus shows that he was interested in Judaism to some degree. Now, when he heard about a couple of Jewish preachers that were going around and preaching this new message, he, was, he became very interested in these two Jewish preachers. Man, these guys are making an impact. Whatever it is they're preaching, it's having an effect. There's, there's all kinds of energy being spent. There's people coming and listening, and things are happening. What's going on here with these two Jewish preachers? I'd like to hear what they have to say. He was interested. He was intelligent, but he was interested in, in the message. And what did he do? The text says that he summoned them. Sergius Paulus wanted to hear their message. The fact of the matter is, is that the Romans and Greeks were fascinated by new philosophical ideas. They were fascinated with religious ideas. You remember when the Apostle Paul later on in his ministry addressed the men of Athens. What did he say? He said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. These guys used to come around and gather just to hear the latest ideas and religious fads. And Sergius Paulus is a Roman. He's no different from his peers and people that lived back in Rome. Or in Athens, he wanted to hear these new ideas and things. And so he sent for them. He was extremely interested in Saul and Barnabas' message, and he called for them to come and speak. When they arrived, they began to present the word of God, the gospel. Now look at what happened in verse 8. But Elimus, the magician, and it says in parentheses, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. As they preached the gospel, Sergius Paulos became more and more enthralled. Man, this is good stuff. This is interesting. This is fascinating. He was processing in his mind. And you know what? God had begun a work in his heart. He was like, this is good stuff. This makes sense. This is impacting me. But Bar-Jesus, a.k.a. Alimas, Alimas is a transliteration of the word magician from Greek into Arabic. But what did he do? He didn't like what was happening and then interrupted their message. He, began, he literally began right in the middle of their preaching to argue against Saul and Barnabas. Why? In an effort to turn Sergius away from the Christian faith. They're preaching the gospel, and this guy stands up. Hold on a second. Don't get too excited, Sergius. Let me tell you some angles on this thing. Let me help you. Let me help to show you why this is false. Let me prove to you. Sergius is probably thinking, shut up. Sit down and shut up. You don't get up and speak at church. But he got up and tried to lure him away. Why did Bar-Jesus do this? Three possible reasons come to mind that I think are relevant, important. 
Number one, Bar-Jesus feared that he would lose his position as court astrologer. Think about this for a moment. Sergius Paulus gets saved. He believes in Jesus Christ. He's added to the church, added to the body of Christ. What need does he have of an astrologer? Cleo has been fired. Call me now. I don't need call me now anymore. I don't need Whoopi Goldberg on Ghost. I don't need any of that weird stuff going on. I got Jesus. I got all I need in Jesus. He is the truth. He is the living word. I don't need an astrologer anymore. I don't need you to come out and draw triangles on the ceiling and figure out what this star means and you're summoning these things. I don't need that anymore, right? What use does a Christian man have for astrology or an astrologer? Do you have to have one working in your court now under your administration? You have no use for someone like that. So I believe one of the reasons why he affronted the apostles, these workers of the gospels, because he feared to lose his position as court astrologer. Number two, Bar-Jesus feared that he would lose his power and influence over Sergius Paulus. That's pretty obvious. If he loses his job, he loses his power and influence. He probably loses his income, probably loses his nice, posh home. Probably there's a lot to be lost here if Sergius Paulus becomes a believer of Jesus Christ. He would lose his power. He can't have this mind control or whatever it is that he had going on with this guy. He can't influence him the way that he did. All of a sudden, this guy passes from darkness to light. He looks at this guy and says, everything that comes out of your mouth is false. He now understands the truth. So this guy, what does he do? He loses his power. He loses his influence. They're not going to call upon him anymore. We've got this issue, this social issue we need to deal with. Well, they just call on Sergius Follows, probably the first Christian in the Roman Senate in this particular province. And what does he say? Let me pray to Jesus for the answer. The Lord is good. He'll provide us with what we need to tackle this social issue, this situation. I don't need to call on that Elimas goofball anymore. That guy needs to repent of his sin and believe in Jesus Christ. What's he doing these days? I don't know. I heard he's over there begging on the freeway. Oh, he'd lose his power. He'd lose his influence over Sergius. Sergius wouldn't need to call on him. Number three, Bar-Jesus feared that he would lose his high social standing in Paphos. Don't you think for a moment that his position didn't come with a high social status? He is connected to the right-hand man of the most powerful and wealthy senator in the province. Don't think for a moment that he would not lose that high social standing in Paphos. No longer would he be able to walk around at these parties that only the elite can get into with his cuvassier in his hand and, hello. Oh, that's gone. Now he's got Pepsi. You know, switch from Coca-Cola. Oh, he'd lose his social status. There's no doubt. He would lose his position. He would lose his power and influence. And he would lose his high social standing in Paphos. Well, our time is up. We will continue. Some of you are going, don't stop. I have to or else we're going on another 45-minute marathon. <laughs> and that's when stuff starts flying. <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to hit pause right there. And, and in the weeks to come, we're going to talk about, I'll give you just a couple of little insights as to where we're going. One point that I'm going to stress in the weeks to come is that 
gospel ministry is always going to be, whenever you're doing gospel ministry, it's always going to be opposed by people. And there are reasons why it's opposed. And, and the obvious thing, too, is that when the gospel is preached, it causes some pretty negative effects, but it also causes positive effects as well. So we're going to flesh those things out in the weeks to come and talk about those things in greater detail. I think it's going to be really good. We're really going to seek to get to the bottom of what's happening in this passage and what's happening with this particular individual, with Elimas and with Saul and Barnabas. And we're going to continue to narrate it. We're going to see what happens to this guy. And what you're going to actually see is something that's far more gracious than torturous, what God does. And I want to get into all the detail, but it's good stuff. I'd like to just lead us into a, a moment of communion where we can just, again, reflect upon the Lord's goodness to us. And communion represents that finished work of Jesus Christ, that new covenant that we've been brought into. It's just such a beautiful expression of the Lord's goodness and love to us that he left us with that ordinance. And so it is a, a worshipful ordinance. It is a moment for you to take those elements and sit and just ponder what Jesus has done, confess any sin that you might have, and enjoy his presence in that very moment, Be, becoming literally refreshed in this very moment. That's why we love to do it each week. It's like a refreshing. And so let me pray for us so we can enter into that and, and take whatever principal truths or whatever you've identified. I'm certain that many of you, if not all of you, have heard some things and said, man, there, there's some areas that I'm struggling. There's some things that I need to apply even through. I mean, there's not a whole lot of application that we've covered, but man, whenever the word of God is preached, you're, you're hearing things. You hear things a little differently than I do. And so take whatever it is that God has told you today and apply that. And I can tell you one thing's for certain, one thing that he has stressed, and that is serve him, right? That's what we started with. Serve him. If you are not serving him, serve him. Receive the joy for that. Receive the blessing of knowing that you're taking ownership here and that you're a part of something much bigger than yourself, that you're being a blessing to this church body, you're being a blessing to this pastor, that you can be like a John Mark. So cool and critical that you do that. I want to encourage you, if you are not serving, get signed up. Come see me. I'll help you. I'll pray with you. Father, may we enjoy this time of communion, a sacred moment, reflecting upon what you've done, receiving again into our hearts the new covenant. Man, you have made us a part of the church, the myster this mysterious, wonderful church that you have revealed in the New Testament. What a wonderful thing the church is. We've been made parts of it through sacrifice on the cross, through the resurrection, through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, now you reign sovereign over all creation. Over your church, you are its head. May we worship you through this time, remembering that the work that you did is the work that you did, not anything that we could do. It's a done work. It's a finished work. Each week we need to be reminded just to receive the finished work. We are recipients of it, joy and glory in that. But remind us again that we don't have to leave this place trying to earn anything. We are compelled by the gospel, not compulsed. So may we enjoy this time of worship. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Help yourselves, friends.